Chapter 3 of Campfire Girls at Twin Lakes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Lucy Burgoyne. Campfire Girls at Twin Lakes, or The Quest of a Summer Vacation by Stella M. Francis. Chapter 3. A Boy and a Fortune. Now, said Catherine, after all the preliminaries of a business meeting had been gone through, I'll begin all over again, so that this whole proceeding may be thoroughly regular. I admit I went at it rather spasmodically, but you know we girls are constituted along sentimental lines and that is one of the handicaps we are up against in our efforts to develop strong-willed characters like those of men. I don't agree with you, Marie Crismore put in with a rather saucy pout. I don't believe we are built along sentimental lines at all. I've known lots of men, boys, a few, I mean, and have heard of many more who were just as sentimental as the most sentimental girl. There were several half-suppressed titters in the semicircle of campfire girls before whom Catherine stood as she began her address. Marie was an unusual pretty girl, a fact which of itself was quite enough to arouse the humour of laughing eyes when she commented on the sentimentality of the opposite sex. Moreover, her evident confusion as she tangled herself up in her efforts to avoid personal embarrassment was exceedingly amusing. I would suggest, Catherine, Miss Ladd interposed, that you be careful to make your statement simple and direct, and not say anything that is likely to start an argument. If you will do that, we shall be able to get through much more rapidly and more satisfactorily. Catherine accepted this as good advice, and continued along the lines suggested. Well, the main facts are these, she said. Mrs. Hutchins has learned that the child whose property she holds in trust is not being cared for and treated as one would expect a young heir to be treated, and something like, $3,000 a year, is being paid to the people who have him in charge for his support and education. The people who have him in charge get this money in monthly installments, and make no report to anybody as to the welfare of their ward. The name of this young heir is Glenn Irving. He is a son of Mrs. Hutchins' late husband's nephew. When Glenn's father died, he left most of his property in trust for the boy, and made Mr. Hutchins trustee, and when Mr. Hutchins died, the trusteeship passed on to Mrs. Hutchins, under the terms of the will. That, you girls know, is the property which was lost for a year and a half following Mr. Hutchins' death, because he had hidden the securities where they could not be found. Although Hazel no doubt assisted very much by Harriet, is really the one who discovered those securities and returned them to her aunt, 
Still, Mrs. Hutchins seems disposed to give us all some of the credit. For several months' reports have reached Mrs. Hutchins that her grandnephew has not been receiving the best of care from the relatives who have charge of him. She has tried in various ways to find out how much truth there was in these reports, but was unsuccessful. Little Glen, who is only ten years old, has been in the charge of an uncle and aunt on his mother's side ever since he became an orphan three or four years ago. His father, in his will, named this uncle and aunt as Glen's caretakers, but privately executed another instrument in which he gave Mr. and Mrs. Hutchins guardianship powers to supervise the welfare of little Glen. It was understood that these powers were not to be exercised unless special conditions made it necessary for them to step in and take charge of the boy. Mrs. Hutchins wants to find out now whether such conditions exist. At the time of the death of Glenn's father, he lived in Baltimore, and his uncle and aunt, who took charge of him, lived there too. It seems that they were only moderately well-to-do, and the $3,000 a year they got for the care and education of the boy was a boon to them. Of course, $3,000 a year was more than was needed, but that was the provision made by his father in his will, and as long as they had possession of the boy, they were entitled to the money. Moreover, Mrs. Hutching understands that Glenn's father desired to pay the caretakers of his child so well that there could be no doubt that he would get the best of everything he needed, particularly education. But apparently his father made a big mistake in selecting the persons who were to take the places of father and mother to the little boy. If reports are true, they have been using most of the money on themselves and their own children, and Glenn has received but indifferent clothes, care, and education. Now I am coming to the main point of my statement to you. Mrs. Hutchins talked the matter over with Miss Ladd and me, and asked us to put up to you in this way. She was wondering if we wouldn't like to make a trip to the place where Glenn is living, and find out how he is treated. Mrs. Hutchins has an idea that we are a pretty clever set of girls, and there is no use of trying to argue her out of it. So that much must be agreed to, so far as she is concerned. She wants to pay all of our expenses, and has worked out quite an elaborate plan, or rather, she had her lawyer worked it out together. Really, it is very interesting. Why, she wants us to be real detectives, exclaimed Violet Monday excitedly. No, don't put it that way, Julietta Hyde objected. Just say she wants us to take parts of fourteen Lady Sherlock Holmeses in a juvenile drama in real life. Very cleverly expressed, Miss Ladd remarked admiringly. Detective is entirely too coarse a term to apply to any of my campfire girls, and I won't stand for it. We might call ourselves special agents, 
operatives, secret emissaries, or mystery probers, Harriet Newcomb suggested. Yes, we could expect something like that from our walking dictionary, said Ernestine Johansson. But whatever we call ourselves, I am ready to vote I. Come on with you, or Mrs. Hutchins and her lawyer's plan. Catherine, I'm impatient to hear the rest of it. Catherine produced an envelope from her midi blower's pocket and drew from it a folded paper, which she unfolded and spread out before her. End of chapter 3